All right, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious God, we come before you with hearts humbled before you. We thank you that you have created us. Thank you that you have sustained us. Thank you, Lord, that you have redeemed us. And you have done these great works that we might give praise to your holy name. Pray, Lord, that you would help us to think clearly, help us to think biblically about an important aspect of corporate worship, the singing praises of your holy name, and praying, praying to you, Lord. Pray that this would be a fruitful time for us all, and it would glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we continue our series on corporate worship talking about the various elements of worship. Not everything goes in, in the corporate gathering or the worship of the Lord. We don't just get to decide whatever it is we desire to do. Uh, though there is freedom as far as certain texts of Scripture to preach and, and read, and certain confessions to affirm, and on and on. There is a, a set way that we ought to worship the Lord, and one of those elements is prayer. Prayers both said and sung. That's all we're looking at this morning. Just to open the topic here, I have a couple questions. They might be trick questions. Maybe one of them is canonically, canonically speaking, Old Testament, New Testament. What is the first song in the Bible? Canonically speaking, okay? So you would want to begin at Genesis. Is there anything that you're thinking of in Genesis? Maybe there's nothing in Genesis, and you go to Exodus, and on and on and on. You, yes, Elizabeth? Um, Adam's song about Eve? Adam's song about Eve. Yes. Do you know where that is? Genesis. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty early on. Genesis chapter two? two. Yes, good job. I didn't prep her beforehand. That wasn't <laughs> sure you did. Yeah. So in Genesis 2, 23, this is, uh, verse 22 says, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said... This at last is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and the man were not ashamed. You can... Granted, it doesn't say, then the man sang. But if you are reading the scene as it ought to be read, he's not saying, this at last is bone of my bones, Flesh of my flesh. He's not saying just perfunctorily, like, okay, I got someone here. No, he is, he is exalting the, the Lord. He is praising God for what he has just provided for him. And he cannot but sing praise to God for his now help meet. Now, chronologically speaking, and I'll allow eternity to, eternity to fit within this realm. 
Chronologically speaking, what is the first song in the Bible? A bit harder question. Chronologically? Yes. You didn't have to go earlier than this, then. Right. <laughs> so perhaps... There's some Genesis. So, it, yes. <laughs> You, maybe the, the spirit hovering over the waters of the deep is that yeah. I don't know. I don't think the spirit exalted in, or began in praise at that yeah. time, but he, yeah. he could have certainly. So, in any, any other guesses? Caleb? Genesis one twenty seven. You know, I like that, but I like my answer more. <laughs> But Genesis 127, do you want to share what that is? Sure. So God created man in his image, and the image of God created him, male and female, he created them. Okay. Maybe something before that took place? This is a little bit of a trick question. The answer is found in Zephaniah, which is, of course, chronologically as far as written out, you know, way forward from Genesis. But in Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Now, if we remember that the Lord doesn't simply begin his... Uh, if we remember that he does everything from eternity past then this singing, this loud singing, this exaltation with gladness, actually has been eternally sung. Remember, redemption has been in the mind of God from eternity past. It wasn't that man fell and he says, okay, I need to figure out some way to help these people now. It's that the Lord has, from eternity past, from before the foundations of the world, from before Genesis 1, 27, he has decreed that he would save a people. And so as he is considering from eternity past this eternal decree, he is singing. He is rejoicing. And the Son is rejoicing. And the Spirit is rejoicing. The Father, Son, and Spirit eternally, in perfect triune fashion, are rejoicing from all eternity, unto all eternity, for the great work that they have planned to do and, of course, will execute. That's why I said just a bit of a question. Anyways, we are considering prayers said first. Now, what is prayer? Before we look at the shorter catechism answer and the larger catechism answer, let me just put the question to you all. Someone were... If you were forced, at gunpoint, to define prayer, that would be an odd thing for someone to do. But if you were forced, how would you define prayer? What is it? It's not going to wait very long before you give him this answer. <laughs> Communion with God. Communion with God. Okay. Praising God? 
not praising, glorifying God? Okay. An act of worship? An act of worship? These are all good answers. Talking to God. Talking to God. Sometimes out loud, sometimes not. Sometimes out loud, sometimes not. Yes. The Shorter Catechism, question answer 98. Uh, well, the answer is <coughs> prayer is an offering, after worship, is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. Now, if you had Shorter Catechism 98 memorized, then perhaps that just came roll out the tongue for you. Notice, uh, let me also read Larger Catechism 178, which, of course, is a longer version of the Shorter Catechism. Though in this instance, perhaps not. Prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God, in the name of Christ, by the help of His Spirit, with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. What's interesting here is that the Shorter Catechism omits a phrase that is included in the Larger Catechism, and the Larger Catechism omits a phrase that is included in the Shorter Catechism. One might even think you could put both of those short phrases and have the same answer for the Shorter Catechism and the Larger Catechism. The... uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism omits the phrase, by the help of the Spirit. Whereas the Larger Catechism omits the phrase, agreeable to his will. Those are pretty short phrases. Again, I imagine you could put both those in a single answer. So it's an offering up of our desires. And interesting, it's for things agreeable to his will. So there we have the command, I guess, here to pray according to his will. We would never want to pray according, uh, contrary to his will. Oftentimes we do pray contrary to his will, hopefully unknowingly. We, thought we might think something is his will, and so we pray that. But James tells us that we should have that posture of submission to the will of God. You know, if, if the Lord wills, we'll, we'll do this, we'll go there, we'll we'll. we'll uh, We'll journey there, we'll, we'll buy this, if the Lord wills. And I think that's the same posture we have to have when we come to prayer. We don't know exactly the mind of God on every particular, though, of course, we can heartily pray the Lord's will um, when, we, when we know clearly from Scripture that it is His will. For instance, we could pray for the ending of abortion, since we know that the Lord abominates murder, murder of the womb especially. So there's praying our own desires, and we do this in the name of Christ, so under the authority of Christ, to honor the name of Christ. When we pray, we confess our sins. Prayer often ought to include confession of sins, acknowledgement of our own wrongdoing. It's not to say that every single prayer must include a confession of our sins, but it's not improper to have that regularly included. In fact, it's, it's very important to have confession of sins as a regular uh, initial step, part of the initial steps of a prayer. Because we acknowledge that we depend upon 
the saving grace of God. That's why we get to pray. It's because uh, God has saved us from our sins. And it's a thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That goes along with the confession of our sins. And as larger catechism adds, by the help of the Spirit. So prayer involves every member of the Trinity. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is triune. But we see that God really wants us to pray. In Philippians 4, verse 6, we read, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Just before that, it says, the Lord is at hand. When we come to the Lord in prayer, he is right there. He is at hand. He is ready to receive your prayer, your supplication, your thanksgiving, your making your request known to the Lord. Of course, it's not as if it's new to the Lord. Well, it's a new request. I've never heard that before. Thank you for informing me. Let me consider it. Prayer, in large part, is for us. It's for us to, to grow. It's a means by which God grows his people. And we ask, we're told that we have not because we ask not. We are told to ask, to seek, to knock. We're told to persevere in prayer. The Lord really wants us to pray. The Lord wants us to acknowledge our utter dependence on him. He wants us to acknowledge that we have sinned. He wants us to acknowledge his abundant mercies that flow freely from his throne of grace. Matthew Henry says, Prayer is the solemn and religious offering of devout acknowledgments and desires to God, or a sincere representation of holy affections, with a design to give unto God the glory due unto his name, thereby, and to obtain from him promised favors, and both through the mediator. So the affections are to be involved in prayer. We simply uh, we don't simply pray with our mind. We pray with our affections as well. And we'll look later on this morning at the various um, at the the panoply the whole the whole range here of affections that ought to be involved. But what Henry acknowledges here that we ought to acknowledge is that when we pray, we have the design to give God the glory. So we, that posture is not my will be done, Lord, but yours. I pursue your kingdom and its righteousness, not my own kingdom. And this happens through the mediator, of course. Well, let's consider some of the corporate prayers in worship and answer just a couple of questions. What are we, for what are we praying in this particular prayer, and why would we, or why must we pray this? So I'll start us off here. Maybe you can have the liturgy in your mind, as far as the order. The first one would be the invocation. Okay? That's the first prayer. 
Right? After the greeting, the call to worship, there is then the invocation. It's perhaps we're familiar with this root word, vocare, we get vocation. And what does what does that uh, root mean? Call. Call. Okay. So, for what do we pray in the prayer of invocation? Calling on God. Calling on God. Okay. Yes, and the end could be understood as on or upon. We call upon. We call on. We call on God. Now, why would we call on God at the beginning of a service? To be with us. Okay. Good. Now, why do we need God to be with us in corporal worship? We can stick with you, Abby, since you're doing swimmingly here. <laughs> oh. Excuse me? We're worshiping him. We're worshiping him. Okay. We're calling upon God to be with us while we worship him. And we need his assistance to worship him. Yes. Now, why do we need his assistance to worship him? Because we are totally depraved. Because we are totally depraved. That's a great answer. <laughs> so we, we prefer at times to worship ourselves. Again, going back to this, uh, we prefer our own kingdom, our own will. So we need God to help us worship him rightly. That's why we call upon him. Very soon in the service, we have another. I'm just going to give these because of the, the length of the notes here. We have confession of what? Sin. Okay. Now, we had a whole lesson on this last week, so I'm not going to speak at length about this. What do we pray for in this prayer? That God would forgive our sins. Yes. To confess means to say the same thing. That is to say, we are saying the same thing about ourselves that God says about us. We are agreeing, yes, based on this call to confess our sins. I see where I sin in this area. Or where, where I have done the things that I shouldn't have done. Where I have neglected to do the things that I should have done. I confess. Now, right after that, of course, there is that assurance of pardon that the elder minister will give. Now, why would we pray this prayer? Why must we pray this prayer? Well, I mean, as John says in 1 John, if we say we are without sin, the truth is not within us. So we have to confess our sins because that shows we are aware of our sins. Yes. We have to confess our sins. It shows that we are aware of our sins. Yes, Joseph. Good. You can't repent of your sin unless you are aware of your sin. Okay. Good. Can't repent of it unless we're aware of it. We can't turn away from it until we first acknowledge what it is that, from which we are turning. You can't ask for forgiveness of it either. Can't ask for forgiveness if we don't know what it is that we need forgiveness for. Just asking for forgiveness. Right. Good. So do not enter so that we can enter into the whole presence of God. 
Jeremiah 13, I think. Who would dare of himself to approach the Lord? The Lord is holy, holy, holy. So we acknowledge that before, before we can even get into the Lord's presence, we, we have to have our sins forgiven. Okay, the next prayer in the liturgy is the pastoral prayer. And underlying this word is the concept of shepherd. So the pastoral prayer doesn't have to be prayed by the pastor, the teaching elder, for instance, in this case. You recall last week, Johnny Searles did the pastoral prayer. It's for the under shepherds to pray for the people. And it's a model. The, the, the pastor, the, uh, the elder is supposed to teach the congregation how we ought to bring our prayers before the Lord. And we are to bring the affairs of the church and uh, at times even the um, society, the, the government. We are to pray for many things. And the pastoral prayer tends to be a bit longer than the other prayers because, of course, there are many things for which to pray. I've been in churches where the pastoral prayer is no less than 10 minutes. Um, good 10, 15 minute, 20 minute prayer. It's, it's, a common, it's common in many Presbyterian congregations. Other Congregations like our own, we have usually three, four, five minutes or so of pastoral prayer. Can't cover everything in a single service. We have a brief prayer for giving. Now, what do we pray in this prayer? That the money that we're giving would be used to further his kingdom. Okay, the money we give would be used to further his kingdom. Now, why would we want to pray that? Why must we pray that? You can, yeah, you can follow. Sure. Uh, because that's why we're giving. I mean, we're giving to the church to further his kingdom. So we're asking the Lord to use the money for his will, for his glory. So we need wisdom and guidance as we use the, the gifts of the church. This is not to say, of course, that the deacons are, uh, we would be accusing them of any nefarious activity when they go count the money or anything like that. We, we just we, we recognize that every one of us needs wisdom, and the deacons, the elders, take very seriously the gifts of the church. We don't want to use the gifts of the church in any way that would be contrary to the cause of Christ. So we, we need that wisdom. So I can never tell Harry if you're going to say something. <laughs> All right, next. Illumination. I heard it. Yes. So we have illumination. What is this prayer? Spirit would open our eyes to what is being read for understanding of yes. what is being read. 
Okay. And this fronts the sermon text, right? The reading of the sermon text in particular. We ask that the Spirit would open our eyes. Now, why would we need our eyes opened? Can't, I, won't, I won't lead you in that way. Why would we need our eyes opened? We're sinful, okay. And what does that sinfulness, how does that sinfulness affect then our reading and understanding of the Word of God? We're really good at not paying attention. <laughs> We're really good at not paying attention, okay. Hearing what we want to hear. Hearing what we want to hear. Yeah. You see, okay, go ahead, Ron. I was just going to say, you know, the Word of God, as it proceeds forth, whoever's preaching, uh, it, it is an active thing. It is active, as the Bible says. It will not come back for you to the purpose which it was sent out. Yes. And so, knowing that, if we know that, then we should ask, you know, please, Lord, help us to see what it is that you want us to see. What yes. is it you want us to react to? What is it you want us to be convicted by? Uh, yes. There's all different kinds of emotions that the Word of God evokes. And um, so I think that's part of the illumination of yes. the Good. Huh. Yeah, in the classical reform theology, we do emphasize the close connection between word and spirit. Yes. That we believe the word because of the testimony of the spirit. The testimony of the spirit is to or God's law and to grace. And so we need the, the testimony of the spirit as we read the scriptures. Yes. He who regenerates us is eternally invested in our increasing understanding of his word. He who inspired the word is desirous of our knowing it more and more. Okay, good. Well, those are very good answers. And the last one would be the transformation, prayer for transformation. This takes place when in the service. Right after the sermon, yes. So you front the sermon with the prayer. <clears throat> sermon is preached. And then after that, we don't just go on our merry way. You just heard 30, 35, 40, 45, whatever. You've heard all this uh, sermon. And what do we do with it? So what do we pray for in the prayer of transformation? Pray for transformation. <laughs> our eyes have been opened. If if we pray by faith, the Lord would open our eyes. Trust that He will do that. He opens our eyes, so we see Christ more clearly. We see the implications of His Word more clearly. Seeing is insufficient. Having our eyes opened to what the Word of God says, and leaving it at that is insufficient. It's actually evidence for greater condemnation if there is not an accompanying transformation. If we know God's word and then say, okay, I can move on by. I, I don't need what was just preached to be applied to my life. And that's, there's a warning for that kind of attitude. So what we pray in the transformation prayer is that that the Lord would keep working, 
in us. That we wouldn't simply have the word go in our ears and then, you know, in one ear and out the other. But that he would, say, even pound us with that text throughout the week. That we would regularly recall his spirit-inspired word. That we would think about the text and make application of the text. So what we're doing is we are asking that the Lord would renew our minds, that we would know things, we know the Word of God, again, more clearly, that our affections, Ron spoke of different emotions that are evoked in a sermon, that our affections would be consonant with the uh, with what the text is calling us to have. And sometimes that would be lamentation. Sometimes that would be joy. Sometimes that would be a godly grief, peace, and on and on. We desire that our affections would be according to the tenor, the tone of the text. And not just that, but also that our wills would be increasingly submitted to the will of God. That we would then obey. That our lives would be transformed. That we would go from one degree of glory to another as each Lord's Day passes. That's what we are praying. Now in here, we have uh, nothing, just parentheses. So I'm going to throw in right here pre-service prayers. The reason it's in parentheses is because we're talking about the specific prayers in corporate worship. But I don't want us to uh, ignore these very important prayers. These prayers are prayed by me, by you, by anyone who thinks of what we are going to do and Mike Basie is one who is excellent at this, at least, or not at least, but at telling me every single Lord's Day. And you can see the seriousness on his face. Give me a good handshake. I'm praying for you, brother. We prayed for you this morning. We prayed for you this week. And I know he does. And I know that that's just representation of, of what you guys do. Oh, Lord, be with the elders this Sunday as they consider all the things of the church. Be with the preached word. And the elders will go into my office before the service and we will pray for the service that is about to begin. We need your prayers. The Lord really wants you to pray for the, for the service. For all the people who were in there, for the visitors who will hear perhaps the gospel for the first time, for the the afflicted, for the self-deceived, for the strong in Christ that they would be stronger, for the weak in Christ that they would be strengthened, and on and on. We every category of individual needs prayer, so there's a lot again to pray for. When I first came to a PCA church, I was amazed at all the prayers. It's actually a little frustrated, to be honest. Why are they praying so much? <laughs> what, I, what I was used to was you get, you get in a church and there might be some 
don't know, funny ad telling, funny uh, video on a big screen saying to make sure you silence your phones. You know, that famous line, that's not Jesus calling you, turn it off, something like that. Something like that, and then uh, you have a good 30 minutes of singing. There might have been a prayer before that. Singing, a couple other things, message, final prayer. It's really one or two, maybe three, very brief prayers. We value praying. And we don't pray perfectly. We value it, though, because we know our dependence upon the Lord. At every step in the service, we are humbly depending on the Lord. Lord, do what you say you're going to do at this point in service. You guys are familiar with uh, the ACTS acronym. Where is it? Acrostic. I always get those two mixed up. You know this guy right here. So A stands for adoration. Adoration. Okay. And C. T, and then S, supplication. All right. There's no Bible verse that tells you you must pray according to Acts. But these are the elements of a typical prayer that we even saw in the Shorter Catechism and Larger Catechism. We are adoring God. It's good to begin this way. Instead of going right into a supplication for your typical prayer, it's good to adore, to worship the Lord, to praise His name for who He is, to consider a particular attribute of God, and just dwell upon that. And as you dwell upon that attribute, maybe His holiness, you are really faced with your sinfulness. And whatever, whatever sins come to mind by the help of the Spirit, you confess this. <laughs> You don't stay there? Of course not. Because you have grace, you have mercy. You thank the Lord. You thank the Lord for what He's done for you. You thank the Lord for what He has promised in His Word, for what you anticipate Him doing. You thank the Lord for the, the work that He has been doing in the lives of your family members, your friends, church. And of course, you have time to bring supplication, to bring your requests before God, to uh, intercede on behalf of other people, to pray. For others to pray for those pray those various requests that are given you in the week, whatever comes to mind. Pray for family, not and on. It's a good way of structuring your own prayer. Not the only way. By the way, there we're doing. We're going to do summer in the Psalms starting tonight for the evening worship, um, and we'll do that with, for five Psalms. And then after that, in months September through December, we will be uh, looking at the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we'll be taking a petition each Lord's Day evening. So we'll have more time to contemplate prayers said. Looking now at prayers sung, we are told on, in the Book of Church Order, chapter 51, section 1, praising God through the medium of music is a duty and a privilege. Therefore, the singing of hymns and psalms 
and the use of musical instruments should have an important part in public worship. This is not to say that if there are no instruments, then there's no acceptable worship being done. That's not, of course, uh, what is saying. If it were saying that, then we would be um, basically saying that our RPCNA brothers and sisters are um, neglecting worship because they do not believe in the use of musical instruments. And they don't believe in the use of hymns, non-psalmic hymns in worship. But this is to say, if you have some musical instruments, you want to consider them as an important part of your worship service. Singing hymns, psalms, of course that's the most important, isn't it? Now we have songs throughout scripture, it doesn't matter at what category of uh, the revelation of God, there's always some example of someone singing, or there is a call to sing. So in the law of God, there, as we saw in Genesis 2, there was Adam's song. In Exodus 15, this takes place just one chapter after Exodus 14, believe it or not, and at that chapter we have recorded the crossing the Red Sea. <clears throat> What would they do but sing after they have been delivered? You could say that's actually a new song. Moses and the people take up singing in response to what the Lord has done. The prophets have songs. In Judges 5, there's Deborah and Barak. They are singing to the Lord for subduing Jabin, the king of Canaan. And even praising the Lord for uh, using Jael. In, um, in helping to be delivered. Jael, the, the tent peg, wielder, if you will. Um, in Isaiah, there are four fairly lengthy sections called the servant songs. These are songs of the servant, the Messiah, the Christ. <coughs> in Isaiah 42, 49, 50, 52, there are these servant songs. Most notably, of course, would be the suffering servant song in Isaiah 53. In the writings, we have many songs. Most famously, we have the Psalms, 150 Psalms. Of course, we also have the Song of Solomon, and we have Lamentations, which help. That's a, it's an important piece of Scripture. See, the, the, we can even sing while lament. The Gospels have songs. In Luke 1, you have Mary's Magnificat. In Luke 1 also, you have Zechariah's the Benedictus. We, have, we sing some of those. These are individuals who respond to the mercy of God and to the plan of God promise being fulfilled before their eyes, they, they break out in song. My soul magnifies the Lord, or blessed be God. In Acts, Paul and Silas are singing in a Philippian jail. So I guess you can sing even while you're in prison. The epistles in Ephesians 3, or in particular Philippians 2, 
Philippians 2, 5 through 11, is called the Carmen Christi. It's the hymn of Christ. That's that hymn uh, that speaks of the humiliation of Christ and the consequent exaltation of Christ. He humbled himself to the point of being servant. Point of death, even death on a cross. And you have in Apocalypse, you have in Revelation, in Revelation 4 and 5, the singing of new songs. You have then in Consider all these psalms in Scripture. You have people singing in heaven and on earth, in prison, out of prison, any day, every day. You have people giving voice to uh, praise to the Lord. Psalm 149, we read, uh, this is uh, to help answer the question, when... And where ought we to sing? Of course, we ought to sing wherever you are, whenever you are. But Psalm 149.1 says, Praise the Lord, sing to the Lord a new song, his praise in the assembly of the godly. It is right to sing in the assembly of the godly, in the congregation of the righteous. It would be insufficient. It would be improper to withhold from singing in the corporate worship. We sing praise to the Lord, and we sing a new song. So this category of a new song is a song that is composed, is written and sung in response to a, uh, a mighty work of the Lord. So, again, the crossing the Red Sea um, then engenders this singing, a new song. In Revelation 5, contemplating the work of the Lamb of God, now people sing a new song. How do we sing? Well, 1 Corinthians 14 15 is instructive. It says, What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So we are to pray and we are to sing in a spirit of worship, with understanding in our hearts. This is then to say that we do not sing according to our preferences. I like that song. That's just makes me feel good inside because when I sing that song maybe it's just the, the music we don't prefer, we don't prioritize our preferences we prioritize the content what is this saying about the Lord of course we also want our, our whole self to be um, moved heavenward we have to ask ourselves, what is moving us heavenward? Is it just a mindless repetition of a particular phrase? Or is it the robust content of the Word of God that the Spirit is, is using? He's, giving, he's using this psalm, he's using this hymn to give voice to our praise. 
why are we to sing? Martin Luther says, The good news of Christ's deliverance tunes the heart to sing. Why do we sing? Because of the good news, because of the gospel. If there were no gospel, there would be no reason to sing. There would only be reason to lament, to bewail, to mourn. Something is said of Martin Luther and his ministry. Luther has murdered more souls with his songs than with his writings and sermons. <laughs> Certainly this was a critic of Martin Luther. But it, it shows the effect that a song can have. And when done rightly, it has quite the effect. It has the conversion of souls even. The Lord can use mighty songs with the gospel going forth in the song to change a person. We sing a mighty fortress is our God. And our congregation loves that song. Sings it with, with gusto. We, we are thankful to the Lord for him being a refuge, for defeating the world, sin, the devil. The Puritan William Seeker says, A drop of praise is an unsuitable acknowledgement of an ocean of mercy. We are to drop those praises, acknowledging that those hail. This just drop the bucket. And here, the ocean of mercy. We are we're simply acknowledging, in part, oh so slightly, the abundant mercies of God. And Richard Baxter, the Puritan, says, Conceive of this duty of praising God according to its superlative excellencies as being the highest service that the tongue of men or angels can perform. To bless or praise or magnify God is not to make him greater or better or happier than he is, but to declare and extol his greatness, goodness, and felicity. We don't make him greater when we praise him. God is eternally and perfectly fully great. He cannot add to his greatness. But we, as another person would say, we make him seem greater. We put on display, even just small portrait of the rich mercies, the holiness, the power, the majesty, the long-suffering of God. Well, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 are perhaps the go-to passages of Scripture that tell us what to sing. Sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We sing the psalms. We sing all the kinds of psalms. Those 150 psalms are not of the same category. They are, um, there are many different categories of psalms. There might be a salvation history psalm, like Psalm 105, that speaks of God creating, laying the foundations. And then uh, the psalm also recounts in brief the history of redemption the Lord wrought in the life of Israel, delivering Israel from the Egyptians. And it concludes with what Israel is to do. 
to respond with joy and to obey. There are salvation history psalms. There are psalms that just pour out joy, that contemplate the steadfast love of the Lord. There are psalms that are full of laments. There are psalms that plead for justice. There are psalms that focus on the mercy of God. The comfort needed when afflicted. As in Psalm 3, when David had fled from his son Absalom. The Lord provides a wide spectrum, the whole spectrum of seasons, of stations in life, of emotions in the Psalms. And so we sing the Psalms. We sing other, or at least portions of Old Testament songs that are not the Psalms. You know that there are the Psalms are not the only Old Testament songs. There's a song of Jacob in Genesis 49 in which he is blessing his sons. The women went over 1 Samuel. There's a, song, there's a song of Hannah. There is the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. There's a song of Habakkuk in Habakkuk 3 when he is contemplating the, uh, the coming uh, invasion of Babylonians. And he is singing that he would be content, come what may. There are non-psalmic songs in the New Testament, like Philippians 2, which I mentioned, the Carmen Christi, or Colossians 1, Revelation 4 and 5, and the various doxologies that permeate Paul's writings, like in Romans 11, or as I mentioned earlier, Ephesians 3. Sometimes when Paul speaks of what God has done, before he exhorts us what to do, he just says, i got to take a minute here and praise the Lord for what he's doing. There's this doxology. So there's a whole range of affections, whole seasons of life. So in a word, what do we sing? We sing scripture. We sing scripture exactly. We sing of scriptural themes. Remember, uh, the first time uh, we, the first lesson in the series, Lincoln Duncan uh, spoke of what we do in service. We, we read God's Word. We sing. Well, we read the Bible. We, we sing the Bible. We see the Bible. We sing Scripture. What do songs do? Briefly, three things. Congregational singing praises God. It's that adoration. We are praising God. Congregational singing proclaims God's word. Jonathan Cruz, in his book, What We Do When We Worship, says, singing acts as a sort of communal preaching. So with Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, what are we doing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs? We are addressing one another. Yes, we are addressing the Lord, of course. But there is also a time when we are addressing one another. Uh, when Pastor Owen was still here, uh, and I, I still, to some degree, I, I do this because I'm just in the front, obviously, but uh, when we were, when the elders uh, was singing that last song at the front pew, some of the songs I would, I would turn, and especially like, God, we need to meet until we meet again. I'm making sure I'm connecting 
with good portions of the congregation each time I'm singing. Because it's not just I'm singing to the Lord, I'm singing to you. I'm addressing you as well. If, if the song is God be with you, till we meet again, we do have in mind our brothers and sisters. So there is that uh, proclamation to one another of the glory of God, the mercy of God, and on and on. And then the congregational singing praise to God. That's what, uh, that's what they did in uh, Acts 16 in prison. Calvin says, as for public prayers, there are two kinds. The one consists simply of speech, the other of song. The applications are very simple, though they take a lifetime to do. The first, of course, is pray. It's a privilege. It is a responsibility. It is also a duty, knowing that God works through prayer. We can pray. We're not simply going through some motions. These are spiritual motions we are going through, knowing that the Lord uses prayer. We can be um, full-hearted Calvinists and believe in the power of prayer. In fact, if we don't believe the power of prayer, we're not full-hearted Calvinists. We don't really believe the sovereignty of God. We misunderstand the sovereignty of God. We say, well, God's sovereign, why pray? No, God's sovereign, therefore pray. We pray, we sing. This also is a privilege, a responsibility, and a duty, even though it is um, perhaps embarrassing for many of us, especially if we're up front and our voice is not particularly manipulous or pleasant. John Cruz says, when we sing God's word, we ought to realize that God is using this moment to manifest his glory and splendor, and indeed his gospel to those who are present. God uses every aspect of the service, not just the, the preaching of the word. He uses, while we're singing, that moment to manifest his glory, to proclaim his, his, his worth, and on and on. So we sing with the whole heart. We sing with our head. We sing with our affections. We sing with our will, our voice. And let us put this into practice now. And Jenny, will you go over to the piano? We will sing 302. Come Christians, join to sing as we prepare for worship. You should have, if you didn't get the handouts just outside the, the room here. Go ahead and stand here, Abel. Our gracious God, thank you for this lesson. Thank you for the opportunity to contemplate prayer and singing. Thank you also for the opportunity to sing praises to you. We are we we marvel, Lord, at the grace that comes from your throne. Grace to sing. And Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts in the coming minutes for the corporate gathering, that we might continue our praise as you've invited us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.